Good morning. I don't think I've ever said it. I, I thought it every Sunday that I've been here. I really appreciate those pastoral prayers. We don't do that at Grace. And um, I don't know, it's ministers to me each and every time. So thanks, brother. Um, yeah, I mean, every church does things slightly different. It's one of the fun things about getting outside of your own church bubble. And uh, it's one of the things I definitely appreciate about being here. So thank you for that. Uh, it's fun to be here with Pastor Jason. It was, I was reflecting just now, 21 years ago is when I finished my seminary education at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm sure that Herschel York's preaching class still has a little bit to do with how I do it, but I'll be interested to get the rubric afterwards and see how much in 20 years I've uh, shifted and adjusted things. Um, but I'm grateful to be here as always. I love, it's just, it's a fun drive over the hill for me. And uh, many of you live over near me, so you're driving over the hill as well. Um, so we're going to look again at Luke today. Um, we're going to be, when, when I thought about the passage with it being uh, the beginning of Holy Week, I wanted to, wanted to center our thoughts leading into Easter um, in Luke 19. And we're going to actually end up spending a little bit of time, I don't know if it's going to be quite 50-50, um, in the, uh, the road to Emmaus as well, trying to get a little bit of a sense of what was going on in the belief during this whole time, and God will use that to help us off with. Um, and on the face of it, it seems like an easy question, but I think that as soon as we spend like two beats thinking about it, it becomes a little bit trickier, and that is, as Christians, are we on the losing team or are we on the winning team? Like, are we losers or are we winners? And the first thought is obviously, well, we stand with Christ, right? We, we will win, but we haven't yet. And that's what we're going to see with our experience as we look at, particularly in these two passages that I want to spend some time at. I want us to sort of dive into this with an eye towards the experience, sort of like the emotional experience of the followers of Jesus, what they were feeling, what they were thinking, what their hopes were, what their disappointments were as a, first of all, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and then as they're sort of dealing with the aftermath, trying to sort through what all happened, and hopefully that will cast our eyes towards um, our own celebration, wrestling with Easter in our own hearts and in our own midst. I'm going to quickly pray that the Spirit will illuminate the text for us and do the work that if he does not join us with, uh, is, uh, we'll be wasting the next 30 minutes. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we need your help. Uh, we are now looking to your word, and we do not have the means capable in and of ourselves to understand it fully and even more importantly, to love it. And so, God, we pray that the Spirit would be active uh, with the word even now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Read. I'm going to read two separate texts, but let's just start with the first one uh, in 19, Luke 19. A text very familiar to, to most all of us, starting at verse 28. This is a ample entry. Many churches around the world this very day are remembering this event. Starting at verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mouth of all of it, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. 
untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who are sent away, those who just told them, are untying the and why are you in? They said, the Lord has it. They spread their clothes on the And as he was drawing, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice in a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And blessed Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees and the God said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The way I want us to think about passage this morning, I want us to think about freeing our notion is what were these following at this moment? It's pretty easy to see. Excitement. Encouraged. Uh, interesting in Luke, Luke is one of the only dis, uh, of the, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that deliberately highlights the fact that it's the disciples that are the ones that are uh, leading these cheers. And for 37, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with this loud voice, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. In Matthew, it says something a little bit more ambiguous about the crowds were saying this. And so in Luke, you get a little bit of a clearer sense that it's sort of the followers of Jesus that have, you know, arranged for him to ride in on this donkey. And it's the followers of Jesus that are sort of like leading these cheers and leading the others as they're coming into the city. And not only that, you get the opposite response from the Pharisees of like, hey, is ridiculous. This must stop, right? It's all packaged in this same package. I want to make a few brief comments, and what I want us to do is then move to the next text, and then we're going to make some some a little bit longer summary comments at the end. We're not going to do what I've typically done when I've been here and sort of be a little bit more careful in our exegesis. Um, first comment. Commentators are split on whether Jesus purposely prearranged this donkey situation or if it was a supernatural act of I see in the future there will be a donkey get the donkey right so in other words you see the difference there they it's sort of it's split in the sense of it's not even a big deal either way the point is riding in on a donkey right so that point whether or not Jesus might have made an the donkey saying, here, there will come a time where I will need this specific donkey, hasn't yet been ridden, to meet the requirements from the passage that we read earlier. And even the disciples weren't aware of it. And then Jesus sends some commentators lean that way. It's like, that's probably why this person is willing to let these strangers just take off with his donkey, right? Like maybe it had been prearranged, but it might not have been. Right? We certainly know that Jesus is supernatural. There's, Luke is not ashamed of the supernatural activity of Jesus. So it could have simply been that Jesus sort of, just like he can know the hearts and the minds of different various characters as he's performing miracles and reading their thoughts and knowing what they're doing, it could have been that, that uh, miraculously arranged this. Commentators are split on this. On the one hand, it's sort of interesting. 
had he prearranged it, it might feel like, well, it's, are we like trying to make apologies for the supernatural activities of the Bible? But it, had he prearranged it, I don't know which happened. That's sort of interesting on its own because it's a very, it seems like almost a more deliberate, more intentional attempt to fulfill this Old Testament prophecy by Jesus, right? Like, I got to find this kind of donkey. I got to make sure when I come in, it's, it's clear that I'm fulfilling this prophecy. So take that for what it's worth. Uh, the main point of the passage is obviously the excitement that the disciples have towards Jesus coming in as the king, proclaiming him as the king, and then surprisingly in some way, if you've read all the way through Luke, it's, might find, we might find it surprising that Jesus isn't telling them to be quiet because many times in Luke leading up to this, after Jesus has performed a miracle or has told his disciples, I'm going to suffer and die, he's explicitly told people, that don't tell anybody, right? It's very common in, in all the gospels, but in Luke you see it multiple times where Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Now it's interesting because whenever the Pharisees say, hey, tell your disciples to remain silent, it's obvious that's the big point of the passage is it's no longer a time for silence. If they stop, the rocks will cry out themselves. Is now is the time for the Messiah, the Messiah, the messianic purpose, role of Jesus to be broadcast broadly, and it will be impossible to keep that message from going forward. How exciting, right? Think about for the disciples, right? They're pumped. Like this is the day they've been waiting for. They're excited. They're, the internal sense is, yes. I'm a, uh, my wife and I are from Oklahoma. So uh, our, our brother that's at Baylor, I was talking about the Big 12 because we're Oklahoma State football and basketball fans. Well, my wife isn't really. She used to be, but, you know, she's 25 years later. These things kind of wear off of her, but not for me. And I remember, like, a big game. I don't even go to games anymore, but before a big game, you're excited. Both teams are excited, right? Some of you go to, like, Dodgers games. Or like Everyone's excited as you go into the game, right? Exciting because you're confident. You think things are going to go well. And that's sort of the sense that you get here from the disciples, right? This, there's excitement. Jesus is going to go and make things right. Whatever other expectations that they have for the Messiah, which we know that they get confused about some of these, whatever those are expectations that they have laid at the feet of Jesus as the Messiah and as the coming king, which is what they're proclaiming, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, Glory in the highest is this, this excitement of what's about to transpire, what's about to occur. So not only is this a time of excitement, this is a time where no one will be silenced about who Jesus is and what he's come to do and what he's come to accomplish. Let's just put that on pause and let's skip over four chapters to Luke 24. And we're going to contrast what we just read with another very common and familiar passage, the road to Emmaus. So chapter 24, a few chapters ahead, picking up in verse 13, and this is right after the resurrection Easter story. So we're very deliberately sort of bookending the passion narrative with this triumphal entry and now this 
conversation on the road to Emmaus. I'm going to read it in two separate chunks and make comments. But first, I'm going to stop at 21. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. They said to them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? He said to them, what things? They said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. It's a different since than the first, right? The first is excitement. It's a parade. Like it's, it's, a, it's a sense of this, the excitement that comes up before the game. Everyone's got their optimism on full flare, on their flags flying high on their optimism. And here we get a glimpse of just two of Jesus's followers, no doubt representative of the multitude of disciples, right? That's the word that we got. The multitude of disciples are all cheering, leading these cheers. And now we get a glimpse of two, of two such people. And how would we summarize their internal state? Disappointed? The text says sad. They were looking sad. Their hope, right? They, they, the hope that they had been experiencing only 10 days or so before, in verse 21, it's very clear, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Indicating, because they're looking sad, that that hope has not occurred, right? They're, they're, they're hopeless at this point. I love the way that what we just finished even ends. It's like, and besides all this, it's been three full days. Highlighting, of course, that Jesus rose on the third day. But in their experience, those three days would be a really long time. It's almost like they were thinking, well, maybe a day into it, maybe something else could happen. Maybe two days. Oh, but now it's three days. There's something to that. I mean, we can pause and make a pastoral point, right? That in the midst of the trials that you're in, in the midst of the suffering, those days get so long and drawn out and just, it's just terrible. But then sometimes we get so in the midst of them. Now, when we read this 2000 years later, it's like three days, like Friday to Sunday, this upcoming week, it's going to go by pretty fast. But in the midst of it, it would have felt like forever, understandably so. So the hope-filled excitement, the feeling of we're going to the Dodgers game, we're going to win, right? We're so excited to be replaced by sadness, hope stripped, disappointment, right? It's like leaving that playoff game, having been eliminated or whatever else you want to consider, right? That, that feeling of excitement multiplied multiple times over because the hope here was not merely for 
a victory or a championship or something that's not very important. The hope here was a promised hope from the Old Testament. The hope was the Messiah will come and he will redeem Israel. So that hope is not merely some sort of abstract, I want my life to be slightly marginally better in this one little category. The hope is the entire hope of Israel resting on this event. So when the hope is greater and then it doesn't happen, the disappointment's even greater. So we have two very disappointed followers of Jesus. And I think that this is representative of the way that they're all feeling. Let's pick it back up in that same passage. I'm going to to read 21 again, and then we're going to flow to the end. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. And then he said to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Begin with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let's make a few comments. Um, it's I broke where I did very deliberately because everything that we read before verse 22 made it understandable they're sad and hopeless. But as soon as 22 picks, then we get like, wow, that's the Easter story. That's what happened. But yet they're still dealing with their disappointment and looking sad, right? And we had hoped that he would do this. And then now we're amazed, right? So now the the psychological state of the disciples is not just one of sadness and disappointment. It's almost like we don't quite know what to do with this. Is that the sense that you get? Like we... We're feeling sad and disappointed. We had hoped that this would go one way. And now we get this amazing report from these women. And then some of the other, some of the others of us, our disciples, they went and checked it out themselves. And their tomb is empty. And we don't quite know what to do with this. It hasn't quite fully filtered, hasn't quite fully engage their minds and their hearts to the point that they are not yet, it doesn't seem, they're not yet excited. They're not yet joyful. They're not, they haven't been returned to the optimistic joy that they had had 10 days earlier. The text makes it very clear. Luke makes it very clear that their vision, it was hidden from them who Jesus was, right? We could talk a little bit about the resurrected body here, right? That it's a physical body. It's Jesus, a fully human, fully God person, but it's still different enough that it could be hidden from them who he is. It's different enough that Jesus's physical body can move into rooms and other things like that, right? So we could, we could stop and make that comment there. But at this point, I just want to point out that Luke, very similarly to how Luke throughout, I think I talked about this last time I was here, Luke's probably one of the more generous uh, gospel uh, evangelist by pointing out multiple times 
the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was saying because it was hidden from them, right? So it's sort of, I, I, I interpret that as a gracious sort of like, hey, these are my friends. They're not stupid. When Jesus said, I will die and raise again, there was other stuff going on there, right? It wasn't just that they're knuckleheads. They didn't quite, they, the spirit wasn't letting them get this. And exactly the same thing here. The spirit wasn't letting them get who it was they were talking to. And then their eyes were opened, just like, uh, in the same time after the resurrection, the disciples' eyes are open to the scriptures. And Jesus says, you guys got it wrong, right? Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, right? And Jesus charges the, the Pharisees with this frequently too. Like, have you not read the prophets? Have you not read the scriptures? It had to sting, right? These are people who, particularly all of them, who loved the scriptures, but just didn't quite get it. Have you not read all that the prophets had spoken, you're, you're, you're slow to believe. Was that not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So we have in these passages, we go from the hope of victory and whatever Jesus is about to accomplish, the sadness and disappointment and hope. We had hoped this would happen and it didn't happen to this word amazed. It's the same word frequently Luke uses the word amazed in the response to Jesus' miracles during his earthly ministry. The people were amazed. The amazing, marvelous Jesus. Okay, I want to make a few summary comments um, and, 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 and kind of stretch this out a little bit between these and to, to figure out what the purpose is. Um, first of all, let's just keep three things in mind. I think that will help us with, with our whole big picture question. Our whole big quick picture question was, are Christian winners or losers? Are we on the winning side or are we on the losing side? And attached to that, I want to throw in, if we're on the winning side, why do we so often feel like we're not on the winning side? Or why do we so often live like we're not on the winning side? And one way to help us with this exact tension that we see in these exact two passages is a theological terminology that most of you are familiar with, not all of you. And I just want to throw it out because I think it's helpful in these sorts of situations. And that is the already not yet that we get through the gospel. So there is an already not yetness to Jesus's victory here. Right? What do we mean by that? Well, all it means is in many ways, Jesus has already accomplished the task, right? Particularly by chapter 24. He's already conquered death. He's already rose from the grave. He's already defeated Satan. But there's also, the, these two disciples are in the exact same place in redemptive history that we are, right? Christ has already accomplished all these things but he has not yet completely finished the job. He has finished the job. It is finished is true, but the results, there's still sin in our midst, right? It's not the case yet that every tear is white. When we read these Revelation passages, it's not yet the case that lions and lambs lay down. There was a famous... Uh, I think he's still kind of a big deal. Ten years ago when I was teaching regularly at Biola, um, I would reference this uh, Jewish, uh, it was kind of a pop culture-y uh, Jewish teacher. And they would ask him, he would be on CNN with other evangelicals and stuff, and they'd always ask him, why don't you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? And he had a funny answer. And he said, well, I don't believe Jesus is the Messiah 
because the prophets are very clear that once the Messiah comes, lions will lay down with lambs. And I watched the Discovery Channel last night, and that's not happening. It's a, it was an interesting way to make a point that the prophets say that when the Messiah comes, that there will be peace on earth. Right? Think about Isaiah. Isaiah says we're going we're gonna to take our weapons and turn them into farming tools. Well, watch the news. We prayed about it this morning. That's not happening right now. Tanks are not yet being used to plow fields. Tanks are being used to do things tanks do. That's the already not yet, right? That not yet do we have no use for tanks. And not yet do we have lions and lambs laying down together. So that helps us with this tension. This is a biblical tension that we feel right here. And it makes us very empathetic to these two disciples of Jesus because we can understand what they're feeling because we feel it ourselves. We feel it ourselves when we get that uh, news from the doctor that wasn't what we had hoped for ourselves or our loved one or our family member, right? This, this feeling of, okay, I know I need to trust Jesus, and I know that Jesus is, is our healer, but we still die of cancer or any number of other things. It's the already not yet. Like, I know that Jesus has come and has successfully destroyed the enemy, but I personally still struggle with my own sinful battle. Already not yet. And it's pastorally helpful. This is one of those kinds of things I, I tend to, I really, really don't ever want to just bring out theological jargon for the sake of throwing out theological jargon. I think it's a bad idea in any context, but particularly from the pulpit. But this is one that's pastorally encouraging to me that as I'm walking through life and I'm dealing with whatever it is I'm dealing with that week, because we're all dealing with the effects of the fall in this world, that I can simultaneously remind myself, you know what? Jesus has already taken care of my worst problem. He's already removed my sin as far as the east is from the west, as Psalm 103 says. Praise the Lord for that. But that doesn't mean that I'm just going to walk through the world with great victory. I'm going to have struggles. I'm going to have bruises. I'm going to have troubles because of the not yet, which is good because what does it do? It causes me to cling to the, to the cross. It causes me to cling to Jesus. So the first thing we can walk away with these two texts in mind is there's an already in the fact that Jesus has accomplished what they had hoped, but he hasn't fully brought the kingdom. Not yet. The second takeaway, this one the Holy Spirit gave me as I was walking my dog this morning. So I'm very grateful for this because I think this is an important one. Um, in the second passage on the road to Emmaus, you've got two disciples who are internally struggling with hopelessness and they're amazed and they're confused and they're essentially trying to interpret all of the data that they've experienced by their own interpretive, subjective grid, right? Their emotional feelings of things. And that's not doing that good of a job for them, is it? In other words, their guide through all this is they're talking to each other. That's good. That's what the church is for. We're supposed to, but their, their guide is ultimately internalistic, subjectivistic. What's going on? How does this make me feel? It makes me feel anxious. It makes me feel hopeless. It makes me feel sad. And what does Jesus do? to remove them from that negative, internal, subjective mentality as he takes them to God's word. It's beautiful, isn't it? Jesus says, 
O foolish one, slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then in 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all that the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He pushed them out of their own headspace and pushed them into God's word to help them try to understand, to make sense of what they were dealing with in that moment. I've heard it at least from 10 different pastors. My guess is you've heard it too. If there was ever any one sermon I wish was recorded in scripture, it's this one, right? I would really love to know uh, what did Jesus say to these guys, right? And I, my, my, over years, I've, I think I shared this with you guys the very first time I preached. Uh, if we lean too much into that, there's, we start to doubt the sufficiency of scripture, right? The spirit knew that we didn't need that. And we'll get that one in heaven. It'll probably blow our minds too. Like, Whoa, okay, all the stuff we thought we had figured out. Oh man, we messed most of it up. But we didn't need that. But they needed it and Jesus gave it to them and it took them out of their internal subjectivist nervous state and it placed their emotions and their minds on the solid footing of scriptures to be reminded that the Old Testament says, hey, this thing that's, that's amazing to you, that Jesus would suffer, this is exactly what the prophet said should happen. It's the exact same lesson that uh, Rabbi Shmuley, I'm pretty sure that was his name, missed about Jesus being the Messiah. It's the, it's the exact same mistake, right? Rabbi Shmuley is the one that said, well, he can't be the Messiah. The lions and the lambs are still attacking each other on the Discovery Channel. It's the same mistake these guys are making, the same mistake we make. And for Jesus to say, hey, let me push your nose into God's word and help you to see that this is exactly what had to happen according to the prophets. And everything that you had hoped that Jesus would accomplish as the king will also happen. Just not yet. It's coming. It's actually, when you really think about it too, depending on exactly, and there's different levels in, in that time period, what they really felt the Messiah was going to do. And it, it, it's sort of, it's, and it's least common denominator. He was just going to be sort of a political leader, right? Just sort of lead them politically. Well, think of 2000 years, how many great political leaders have come and gone that we've just largely forgotten about or we read about them in a history book. And at that time, some of these followers of Jesus, not just sort of the great, the, the followers of Jesus themselves were disappointed that he wasn't just another name on that list of political leaders that led them over some sort of conquest from their current political rivals, only to die, go down in the history books, and become a footnote. And because their expectations are set incorrectly, they are missing the fact that what Jesus actually is accomplishing. Now this, I want to cash that out for us. Right? Jesus did not come to meet our expectations. There's a lot of reasons Jesus came. But to meet our expectations or to meet his disciples' expectations is not one of them because we will get those wrong. And there's all kinds of teachings and, 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 and preachers that will tell us all kinds of things. If you believe in Jesus, blank will happen for you, whether it's you will not get sick or your bank account will not go empty or any number of other things that will create expectations that are not biblically set. But we do the same things. We start to say, well, why, 
why did I have this? I, my wife and I are at the age in which we have four teenagers, one in college, three in high school. And, you know, it's fairly regular in our church. We have, you know, just t- teenage stuff going on, right? It's just the normal teenage stuff. And my wife and I are very presently aware that, wow, if not by God's grace, that would be the phone call we'd be getting from the youth pastor or from the principal or from whomever. And it might be next week, right? It's not because we're so great at parenting. Our kids have been remarkably great up until this point. Who knows what the future holds? But the point being that Jesus did not come with any part of his job title to make sure that he didn't disappoint his followers, right? That wasn't a part of his job title. The job title was to accomplish the purposes of his father, to do the will of his father. And then his followers, our job is to what? Make sure we adjust our expectations accordingly. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You know, we can, we can fight about it. We can wrestle about it. We can, we can ask God for things. We can have that conversation as we allow our wills to be adjusted to that of the father. But at the same time, at the end of the day, our job is to not demand and be sad that our expectations have not been met, but rather to adjust our expectations. And we do it through, through God's word, just like these gentlemen here, right? We focus on God's word. We allow the spirit to open our eyes to those places that we are not seeing things clearly. And the third takeaway is uh, one we could talk about a lot longer, but I just want to sort of almost like the already not yet. I just want to uh, lean into that a little bit. And that is that theologians really since Luther and maybe even a little bit, uh, uh, there's definitely some early church fathers that talked about this as well. There's a divide that sometimes is made between the theology of the cross and what's called the theology of glory. And, and, and there's a lot of different things wrapped into this and people are making different kinds of um, points about it. And often in contemporary time, people are talking about it with sort of the health, wealth, gospel stuff, and, and, and it's an appropriate place to land it. But I just want to bring this sort of divide out for us to say, what was the expectation of the followers of Jesus was that Jesus would be glorified, right? What didn't happen? He wasn't glorified in their minds the way they anticipated him being glorified, in fact, he was humiliated utterly and murdered unjustly. So they're expecting glory. They watch humility and death. But then what Jesus says is, didn't you pay attention to the prophets that this, this is the theology of the cross, this humility, this death, this sacrifice is absolutely necessary for the glory. In fact, it's exactly what Satan was trying to tempt Jesus with at the beginning of his earthly ministry, wasn't it? Hey, why don't I just give you the glory now? Why don't I just give you the kingdoms without, without the cross? Probably one of them, you know, Jesus was right to recognize how dangerous of a temptation that is. It's also the exact same reason that Jesus responded the way he did to Peter when Peter said, you don't have to die. And what does Jesus say to Peter? You're acting like Satan right now. You are tempting me to go straight for the glory without the cross. Can't be that way. Doesn't work that way. That the theology of the cross is what's necessary this is, why, this is why sin and redemption and the gospel in our evangelical churches is so crucial. Because if we miss 
my sin, then we minimize the cross and we might try to leapfrog right over to glory in the second coming to say, oh, but if we maximize how important our separation from God is by our willful, deliberate choice, it maximizes the importance of the theology of the cross. And the suffering of Jesus becomes, while it might be amazing and it might cause some, some places to feel less than comes absolutely maximized in our theology. And it helps us then to walk through our own sufferings, whatever sufferings that Christ has for us, that we follow a man of sorrows who is now at the right hand of the Father in his glorified state. And so we can now navigate this world that we're walking through that is broken, full of wars, full of hunger, sadness, we can navigate that to recognize we are to be agents of light in this dark place because this isn't all that it is. There's something coming. Ultimately, the theology of the cross says when that, when that not yet occurs, when Jesus comes back and whenever every tear is wiped and there is no more crying, lions are laying with lambs, that Jesus' work that we see in these two passages will be accomplished fully. So let's do this as our takeaway. Let's remind ourselves as we walk through our days of the already not yet. I think when we do that well, it allows us as believers to enter into the sufferings of others way better than anyone else, right? We have a worldview that allows us to walk right up on someone who's having a miserable time and we can enter right. We don't have to be fearful of that. We don't have to try to hide from that or isolate from that. We can enter into that with them. We can, when we're battling our internal subjective doubts and amazements, how do we battle that? We battle that with God's word, just like Jesus pointed these two followers on the road. He took them to the Bible. And finally, we can remind ourselves that glory for Jesus doesn't come in any other way other than through the suffering of the cross. And that might be a really good meditative, contemplative notion for us to be thinking about in your homes this week as the elders instructed you to be thinking about the gospel and to be thinking about, okay, this suffering that this humiliation was required for the glory. That's what makes Easter sort of wonderful, right? That it's simultaneously suffering and glorious. Powerful. And it simultaneously allows us to feel empathy in our pain and give us hope for victory. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your word. Uh, allow it to minister and bounce around in our heads and to fill our hearts with hope and to, to meet us where we're at this very morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.